Well, hey, good morning, y'all. How we doing? So good to see y'all this morning. My name is Kyle Bryant, and I am the college pastor here at uh, Alberta Baptist Church, and I'm so glad and excited to get to preach God's Word this morning. Not something I get to do a lot on Sunday morning, so I'm very thankful to Pastors Colby and Keith for giving me the chance today. If you're going to take your Bible today and uh, turn to the book of James, uh, we're going to be in James chapter 4 uh, in verses 13 through 17. Just to kind of remind you where we've been in our sermon series recently. As we have been in the book of James, uh, we're slowly closing in on finishing the book, but we are uh, closing out chapter four today. Uh, but we've been walking through the book of James this summer. But just to give you a little bit of a background on what's going on in case you're new with us, in case you need a refresher on what's been going on in the book of James. Uh, the book of James is a letter written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, It's a letter written mainly to a church in the Jerusalem area, but also a group of Christians of Jewish background that had been scattered all around the Mediterranean region. And he writes to them, and he writes to us today, to remind us really of one thing, to remind us of how the gospel should affect the way that we live everyday life. That if the gospel is true, which it is, that it should have radical implications on the way that we live our normal lives. That some people say our faith should work, that our faith should work in our lives. And that's what we kind of been seeing the past couple of weeks. And Colby spent the past few weeks talking about how the gospel works in our relationships, specifically in relational conflict, things like that. And today, which I believe is a very fitting passage for just where our church is at even today as we mourn the loss of Billy Barton. Today, we're going to look at how the gospel influences how we plan our lives and how we look at the grand scope of our lives and how we hand all things over to him, to him today. And so I think it's going to be a very challenging message. I've been very challenged by this this week. Uh, but as we begin, I have a confession to make. It's important to make this confession is that I sometimes can be a Christian atheist. Sometimes I can be a Christian atheist. And I got a feeling that we have some other Christian atheists in the room as well. And what do I mean by that? Well, first off, I'll say Christian atheist isn't something I came up with. It's the name of a book by a guy named Craig Rochelle. He's a pastor in Oklahoma. But I'm going to borrow his term for today. But a Christian atheist is this. I'll define it for you. Maybe this will help you out. Uh, A Christian atheist is someone who believes in God. They'll profess belief in God. But they live many times like he doesn't exist in their practical day-to-day life. It's someone who will come to church on Sunday morning. They'll make time for God on Sunday morning. But the rest of the week, they don't really consider what God might have them to do with Monday through Saturday. It's kind of their own pocket of their life. A Christian atheist is someone who puts their faith in God for eternity, but they don't put their faith in God for today or for tomorrow or for this life. But they kind of leave eternity to God, but not this life. And I'll confess, y'all, I've been a Christian atheist this week. Uh, me and Haley are making some really adult decisions. We're buying a house this week, which we're very excited about, and signing away my life to a bunch of money is a cr- crazy thing. But, um, but we've had all kinds of adult decisions to do, and we've had you know, car problems this week and that kind of stuff, I'll admit. But I'm a planner, and we may have some other planners in the room, but I'm a planner, and so, so therefore I worry and I stress <laughs> about all kinds of things when it comes to that. And I'll confess, this week I've struggled some with some of the stress of like financial decisions to where I've really wrestled with the fact, like, do I really trust God with today? You know, do I really trust God with providing for us? We're not, we're not in a tough place. Don't worry, we're fine. You can pray for us, but we're, we're good. But just my planner nature and my stress and warrior nature, I've been confronted this week with this passage about am I leaving pockets of my life where I say, God, I have control over this. I'll take care of it. I don't need you in this part of my life. I can worry about it and take care of it on my own. And, and I'm living as a Christian atheist. And so today, I think we're going to see this in this text that James is going to speak to the Christian atheists in the room 
which I think we all can live this way in different times. He's going to speak to us and really tell us a couple of specific things about what it means to live as a Christian atheist. He's really going to rebuke us in many ways, myself included, but then he's going to give us a solution. I think it's something that's very helpful for us today. So if you have your Bible, look at James 4.13. It'll be in the screen as well. But let's read these verses, let's pray, and then we'll get into this today. All right? James 4, 13 through 17, I am in the ESV. It says this. It says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how, Lord, your word, it penetrates our hearts. It exposes us in areas that we don't really want to deal with or that it it opens us up to rebuke and correction because it's good. Or because your word really is working for, for our flourishing in life. Lord, as believers, you're guiding us toward life in the kingdom, the kingdom that may seem upside down at times, but it is for our ultimate good. So, Father, I ask that you give us a posture of humility, a posture of um, humbly submitting ourselves to your word today that will open up all of our lives, there won't, there won't be a, that there won't be a Christian atheist walking out of this room today. But they would walk out, Lord, completely opening up every part of our lives to your will, your guidance, Lord, and what you want to do both in and through us. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so three things that really James wants to tell us today about living as a Christian atheist. There's three things. He wants to tell us that it's foolish, that it's arrogant and evil. I'm going to combine those as one. And it's sinful. Okay, so a very positive message for us today at the beginning, but this is good. We need to hear this, all right? Let's think about those things, those three things. First off, living as a Christian atheist, it's foolish. Look at me again with verses 13 and 14. Let's read them again. It says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So first off, look at this. These verses at first can seem kind of confusing, you know, because if you look at it, you're like, well, what were they doing wrong in these verses? Like if a friend came up to you today after church and said, hey, I got an internship in Atlanta. I'm going to leave tomorrow and I'm going to go, I'm going to work there for a year. I'm going to make some money, get some job experience. It's going to be great. Like, I, I doubt you would respond the way James does, right? I doubt you would be like, what is your life? You know, you're a mist, you know, like, that'd be kind of awkward, you know, <laughs> I don't know if we would respond that way, the way James does to them, right? So what, what's going on here? Well, first off, we need to know that in James's context, the church there in Jerusalem, the church he's writing to probably had a lot of business people in it. A lot of people who would, who would speak this way about their plans. And so in these verses, then is James rebuking them saying it's sinful to plan, wrong to want to save up, to make money, to plan for the future? Well, not necessarily, because one thing we got to remember is this. Anytime you come across difficult verses, the first thing we have to do is remember that we always compare scripture with scripture, that we interpret scripture with scripture. So when we come across a difficult verse, we got to look at other verses to see what's going on here. So I'm going to give you two examples of how the, uh, the Bible really upholds the goodness of planning and the goodness of saving and working hard and things like that. I can show you a lot of verses, but two today that'll be on the screen are from the book of Proverbs. I'll give you two here. Proverbs 6, 6 through 8 says this. 
It says, go to the ant, O sluggard, which is a great word. You never want to be called a sluggard, but it's just a great like $5 word. But go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. So first off, we see that if we're a sluggard, we should look to the ant. The ant gives us a great example of saving, of planning for the future, that it's a good thing. What about Proverbs 21.5? Also says this. It says, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who's hasty comes only to poverty. So we see Proverbs even here upholding the importance of planning, the diligence of, of planning. It's a good thing. So the Bible is upholding the goodness of uh, planning in our lives, planning for the future, to work, to make money, to save up for later in life. So that's not a bad thing. That's not what James is condemning here. He's not condemning planning. So what's the problem? Well, you can see it really in the way that James captures their tone. It's not that they were planning and being sinful in that way, but the fact of the matter is they were being selfish and prideful in their planning, right? They were leaving God out of their planning. I heard one pastor say it this way. The problem wasn't their planning. The problem was their posture before God. I'll say it again. The problem wasn't their planning. The problem was their posture before God. Because really they're being Christian atheists. If we look at it, right, they let God in a Sunday morning, right? They let God in some of the quote unquote spiritual parts of their life, but they were leaving him out of their life plans. You know, they viewed their life as completely their own. They were thinking they had years and years left of life to kind of plan, to do what they wanted, live however they wanted. But James tells us when we live this way, we're foolish. When we live this way, we're ignorant of God's knowledge. We ignore his wisdom. We ignore his view of really our lives. And that's because when we plan for the future apart from God, really what we're doing is we're pretending that we are God in many ways. When we plan for the future apart from God, we pretend, to know, we pretend that we know the future. We pretend that we can control the future. We even pretend that we'll be even alive in the future and that we'll even be alive tomorrow. And we see that famous verse there, right? That James tells us in reality, our life is like a mist. Right? It's, like, it's like a vapor. It's here for a moment and then it's gone so quickly. You know, it's like steam coming off a, a cup of hot coffee, right? It rises up for a second and then it's gone. That was my most millennial example of, of life being a va- like a vaporous coffee, okay? Because I love coffee, all right? But it's like steam coming off of a cup of coffee, right? And honestly, the older I get, the more I realize this is true. Like me and Haley don't even have kids yet to like feel, you know, like life is just flashing before our eyes with them getting older. I'm sure when we have kids that we'll feel even more that way. But already, even just me and Haley have been married over a year. I've been at this church six years. I'm 32. I'll be 33 next year. Where's my life gone? You know, like, you know, you're saying like you're almost 33. That's not, you got a long way to go. I know. But for me, almost being 33 seems like a big deal. You know, the college students think I'm ancient. Okay. So, um, but yeah, it's like, man, where's my life gone? So many of you in here who are older than me, you know this. You, you've seen life be uh, the vapor that it is. And even more than that, I think about my time here at ABC and, and how we've had so many people who have really gone to be with the Lord so much sooner and so much quicker than we would have expected or we anticipated. Uh, I think about people like Bruce Mills, people like Carolyn Matthews, people like Dave Kitchens. And sadly, I have to add Billy Barton to that list today. But I think about people like that who love Jesus so faithfully who were so faithful to Christ, so faithful to his church, but went to be with the Lord quicker than we expected in unexpected ways. And every time that I attend a, I attend a funeral for someone like that, 
I'm reminded of these verses, and I think we all should be, because we had to ask ourselves the question then, what are we doing with our mist? You know, what, what are we doing with our vapor, our short existence of a life? You know, are, are we living in a way to where we have years and years left in our life to do whatever we want? You know, maybe we say, yeah, when I get older, then I'll get more serious about my faith. You know, I'll become more generous. I'll become a better steward of my time, of my family, things like that. Because James tells us, he tells me today, that it's foolish to think that way. Because we don't know if we'll even be alive tomorrow. And now just because life is short doesn't mean it's not significant. Honestly, because life is short, it means it's very significant. But we have to ask these kind of questions. Like, what are you doing with your mist? Are you living in light of eternity, eternity today? Are you living every day? Like tomorrow isn't promised, but God has given you today to live for his glory. And today is what he's given you. Uh, the missionary C.T. Studd wrote a poem one time, and you've probably heard this before, uh, but it's a powerful line where he says this. He says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And that will last. And that's so true. Because in the end, that's all that really matters. If we're honest, in about 100 years, most people on this earth won't remember any of us in this room. 100 years from now, at best, some of us will be a memory of an ancestor and family. But in 100 billion years, every one of us in this room will still exist, but will exist somewhere. We'll exist either in the presence of the Lord or apart from him in judgment and condemnation forever. But God has given us today to make that decision of not only where we'll spend eternity, where we'll spend the next hundred billion and billions and billions of years, but also the way that we're gonna impact the next million years, the next billion years. Because we may not be promised another day on this earth, but we're promised that we can have an impact for eternity today. And so that's the question we have to ask first is, what are we gonna do with our mist? But second thing we see about living as a Christian atheist is that James tells us it's arrogant and it's evil Okay, look at verse 16 again with me. James says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. And James is pretty blunt with us here. He's very upfront with us. He'll read your mail a lot in his book, okay? Um, but that phrase, boasting in your arrogance, is really interesting. Because think about it. Like, uh, that word boasting in the Bible isn't always like a negative word. It can mean even a positive thing sometimes. The word in and of itself just means to put your confidence in something. It's, it's to brag about something. You know, Paul, the apostle Paul in many of his letters talks about boasting in Christ, boasting in his weakness, right? Putting confidence in the Lord and not in himself. But this boasting in your arrogance is a little bit different. And we get a great example of what this can mean in 1 John 2.16. 1 John 2.16 will be on the screen, but it says this. It says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And that phrase, pride of life, is interesting because in the original language, the Greek, pride of life is one word. And that word only appears one more time in the New Testament, and it's here in James, where we see the word arrogance, right? The word arrogance here. So what James is kind of telling us here with his arrogance is we're arrogant when we think that we control our own lives, when we control the future and we control our own destiny. So when James says that these people boast in their arrogance, you know, it's like they're bragging about something they don't have and something that they can't even attain on their own. 
You know, it's like a Napoleon Dynamite with Uncle Rico, where he's like, how, mu- how much do you want to bet I can throw a football over the mountains? You know, like he's the ridiculous guy, which does anyone, has anyone seen Napoleon Dynamite in the past five years? Okay, good. All right, so it's an old movie, I know. We view that guy in that movie like he's ridiculous. And really, that's the idea, is that he's bragging about something that he can't do. And we all know he's just kind of, you know, washed up uh, guy, football player in high school, kind of crazy. But that's what James is saying we're like in this context. But James is saying is that when we plan our lives this way, when we live as a Christian atheist, we're being more than ridiculous, but we're being arrogant and we're being evil. And why is he so bold about that? Why does he use such strong words? Well, because living this way, Living in rejection of God's authority in this way means that we reject his sovereignty, means that we reject his control in our lives. And James calls us arrogant when we live this way because we ignore God's will in our lives and we just simply seek to live the way that we want to. When we live as a Christian atheist, we think that we're sovereign, that we're in control, that we know everything, that we're all powerful and that we can take care, take care of ourselves. But if we're honest, God's the only one who's all powerful who's all in control, who knows everything. And so, but so often in our lives, we try to pretend that we are those things and we really live in a way that we say we don't really need God. Like we'll confess a belief in God, maybe spiritually, maybe intellectually, but then practically we live as if we don't really need him, right? And really that's why James calls this sin evil is because that very nature is the nature of, of Satan himself. Didn't Satan himself wanna be God? Didn't Satan want to take God's place and take God's, God's authority in the heavenly realms? And so therefore, when we try to be God on our own, we're being evil. We're being evil in nature. We're being satanic, if you want to call it that, because we're trying to take God's place, his rightful place in our lives. But then practically, this can work out in our lives in lots of different ways, because we can tell God that he can have control over our afterlife, but not our present life. You know, we can say to God, God, you know, I, I trust you for my eternity, but I don't trust you with my dating life. You know, I, I can find the right person to marry on my own. I don't need your help. We say to God, you know, God, I trust you with spiritual salvation, but I don't trust you with financial provision. You know, I'm a hard enough worker. I'm self-sufficient. You know, I can do this on my own. I don't need you to provide for me in that way. Not recognizing that even our ability to work is a gift from God. We say to God, you know, God, I trust you to be my heavenly father, but I don't really need your help to be a good earthly father to my kids. I got that figured out on my own. You know, I can read enough books. I can, you know, do stuff on my own. Not that books are bad. Books are awesome. I love reading books to learn. But if we have this position and posture of we don't need God in our lives to provide in those ways, we're living, like James says, we're living arrogantly and we're living evilly. We need to hear the words of Abraham Kuyper uh, with this old quote. I'm quoting a lot of dead guys today, but it's great quotes, okay? But Abraham Kuyper said it this way. He says, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. There's not one square inch in our life that God isn't sovereign over, where he doesn't claim authority, and where we don't need his help. And to think any other way is arrogant, and it's evil, and it only leads to our destruction. It only leads to a mess, and we'll talk about that more in a second. The last thing we see with living as a Christian atheist is that it's sinful. All right, verse 17, look at that one again with me. Verse 17 says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's sin. For him it is sin. Now, some commentators look at this verse and they think it doesn't quite fit in the context of what James is talking about. It's almost like he kind of tacked on like a tweetable moment here at the end of, his, uh, of chapter four. It seems a more like a general proverb. But if you look at it, it really makes a lot of sense that it's here. 
Because notice how the verse starts. It begins with so, or maybe your translation says therefore. So what James is doing, he's making an implication from everything else he's been saying so far. And really what he's doing is this. He's expanding our thinking about sin. He's expanding our thinking about sin. Because a lot of times in our life, right, we think about sin as something that we do, right? God says, don't lie, and we lie. Therefore, we disobey, right? We, we sinned in that way. But James is telling us that sin is not only the things that we do in disobedience to God, but it's the things that we don't do. It can be when we know the right thing to do, and we don't do it. You know, people sometimes call this the sin of omission, right? We, we commit sin, we commit sin when we disobey God's laws. But there's also the sin of omission where we're omitting obedience. And, and James tells us that's just as much sin as the, the commission, the committing of sin. And that's because the essence of sin is not simply, you know, breaking a list of arbitrary laws that God gave us. But really the essence of sin, like we've talked about, is trying to live apart from God trying to be God on our own, defining the rules on our own, trying to to live our lives apart from God as Lord of our lives. And so living as a Christian atheist in this way is sinful because we're rebelling against, against God's authority. Not only his authority to say what we do, but also what we don't do in both ways. And that really should expose us because I won't make you raise hands, but how many of us here have always done the right thing when we knew the right thing to do? How many of us have always done the right thing when we knew it? You drive by that person on the side, on, who's stuck on the side of the road with a flat tire. You're like, yeah, I really have time to help them, but I'm busy. You know, I, I got to get to coffee or whatever. You know, we can think of so many examples in our lives where we know the right thing to do. And that's a simple one. But so many things where we know the right thing to do and we don't do it. And James is exposing me here. He's exposing you here in this. And I want to I read for you a, a confession from the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, this is, yet again, a, a dead person wrote this, but it's really good. Um, but it's from the Anglican Book of Crime and Prayer. And I, I love this confession because I want us to hear the kind of sin or the, the description of sin that they use here that is so convicting. It should be on the screen. It says this. This is them in a prayer of confession. It says, Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. And get this. By what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And so often we don't think about sin that way, right? We think about what we've done, but we don't think about the ways that we have not loved God with our whole heart, that we haven't loved our neighbor as ourselves. And the idea here is not to make us feel guilty, but that James is exposing us to our need and our dependence for God. Our, you know, he wants us to see the depth of our sin, but see the depth of God's grace and what he wants to do in our lives. All right, so before we move on to the solution, real quickly, I wanna think about two ways that living as a Christian atheist can practically really lead to a lot of mess in our lives. Really, it leads to two things. It leads to worry and it leads to pride. Like I mentioned, I'm a warrior, so I get the first one for sure. But living as a Christian atheist, practically in our lives, it can lead to worry and it can lead to pride. First off, if we think that we're in complete control of our lives, you know, when things don't go the way that we planned, right, it's going to just create worry in us. It's just going to create anxiety in us. You know? We end up losing sleep because we're so worried about something. Maybe you're like me. In college, I developed ulcers because I was so stressed out about school. I had to go to the hospital for the first time ever, really, and get medicines. I had, I had ulcers because I got so stressed out about school because I was worrying because I thought my whole college career was in my hands and not in the hands of God. 
You know, but really the way that this works out is when we worry in this way, what we're doing is we're looking at God and we're saying, God, you know what? I trust you for eternity, but I don't really need you in the rest of this stuff. You know, like I know that you got me for eternity, but I'm, I'm not sure if I even need you right now. And honestly, God, I'm not even sure if you're gonna get my life right. Like I have plans in my life of what I wanna do, what I wanna accomplish. And I'm not sure if I can trust you to get it right. So I'm gonna worry. I'm gonna stress myself out. I'm gonna try to control it on my own. But that makes no sense. Because it's us trying to be God when we're not God, right? And we're not meant to carry the weight of the universe on our shoulders. But when we worry and we give in this way, that's what we end up doing. The second thing is pride though. Maybe you're not as much of a warrior, but also if we think we're in complete control of our lives, when things do go the way we planned, we end up giving ourselves way too much credit for it, right? Maybe things go the way we planned and we're like, oh yeah, of course they went that way because I'm awesome, you know, because I'm a great planner, because I'm really good at what I do. And we end up becoming prideful. And then one of two things happens there. Either number one, eventually we realize the control that we thought we had was just an illusion and it all falls apart and we just despair. Or number two, we get to the end of our lives, realize that we achieved everything we thought we wanted in life and it was just empty, that it wasn't enough, that the pride we had built up was just a facade, uh, you know, covering a hole in our hearts that was only meant to be filled by the Lord. And so all that to say, James has shown us how it's sinful to live as a Christian atheist. It's foolish, it's arrogant, it's evil, and it leads to worry and pride. So what's the solution? All right, what, what do we do? All right, I'm glad you asked that question. All right, so second point on here. All right, what's the cure for the Christian atheist? Two things. Number one is to understand God's will. And number two is to submit to God's will. All right, first one, let's have a brief theology moment for just a moment, uh, talking about God's will. Okay, because we get this kind of confused in the church sometimes about what is God's will? What does it mean to follow his will? Things like that. First is this, you can think about God's will in three ways. All right, I'm gonna alliterate it because I'm a pastor. All right, so first off is his will of decree. All right, God's will of decree. This is, as scripture would say, what God has ordained to happen, right? We know that everything happens according to God's will, right? And whatever he decrees to happen is gonna happen. I'll give you some examples. Ephesians 1 says that all things work according to the counsel of God's will. And Matthew 10 tells us that not even a sparrow, a tiny little bird, not even a little bird falls to the ground dead without God knowing that it happened and willing it to be so. Even Romans 8, 28 tells us that God even uses the, the sinful, evil, messed up stuff in this world for ultimate good, for our ultimate good and for his glory that God is sovereign over all things, that everything happens according to his will of decree. A lot of questions there that I can't answer because they're hard questions, but that's what the, the Bible tells us, okay? So his will of decree. Second way to think about his will is his will of desire. It's what God desires for us to do. It's what God has commanded us to do. The way he wants the world to work, the way he wants us to live, all right? Although not everyone does the will of God in that way. Think about Matthew 7. Jesus tells us that only those that do the will of God will enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's something we actively choose to do. Matthew 6, the the Lord's Prayer, tells us that Christians should pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And eventually God's will of desire and his will of decree will come together when Christ returns. But before then, here and now, that's not the case, right? And really we have the Bible to show us so many ways um, to seek out God's will for our life. There's straight up verses in the Bible where it says, this is God's will for your life. Things like this. It's, the Bible says, it's God's will for your life to be sexually pure, to be joyful, to pray continually, to give thanks no matter the circumstance and to do good. The Bible says that is God's will for your life. But even more than that, the big picture of the Bible is that God's will for our life is that we know him, that we be holy like him, 
and that we display him to the world by making disciples of all nations. That's, that's God's will for our life in that sense. So then we move on to the third one we kind of get hung up on sometimes, his will of direction. And I put a question mark there because this one is one that we can kind of get confused about because sometimes we think that God's will for our lives means that when we, when we come to make a decision in life, that maybe we have three decisions we can make in terms of a job or maybe somewhere to move or some other decision. And we think, okay, well, of these three, one of these has to be God's will. The other two are not. So I have to somehow divine and figure out which option is God's will and which ones aren't. And that's not really the way that the Bible describes how we figure out God's will. Of course, in those three decisions, you know, maybe one of those decisions is like, you're going to become an assassin. You're going to murder people for a living. That's not God's will for your life. Okay. He he doesn't want you to live and kill people for a living. That's sinful. Okay. Um, All right. But there may be other two good options that could be God's will for your life. All right. But because really sometimes we think, okay, God's going to give me a sign that this specific thing is God's will for my life. That's not always the case. Like God may give you a sign. Like in my life, God has sometimes spoken to me in really specific ways. He's given me some divine promptings and some like voices in my head that I can't really describe that like he's kind of given me specific direction in life. But the Bible never tells us to seek that kind of stuff out. The Bible Bible never tells us to seek out a sign in that kind of way. And don't use Gideon and his blanket as an example because Gideon's a terrible example of someone to follow after in terms of how he obeyed God in Judges, okay? But it never tells us to seek a sign from God But instead, and I'm going to put this on the screen right here, we should seek devotion over direction. That's the idea of what we see in Scripture, is that we should seek out devotion to God over direction. I'll give you two verses to look at. Psalm 37, verses 3 through 5 says this. It says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. Then Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 6 says this. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make, your, your, he will make straight your paths. So what's the general thrust of those verses? What's the focus of what we should be doing? Right? It's not divining from God a decision like he's like a divine genie that kind of we put in our prayers and he gives us like this sign from the heavens. No, the general idea of those verses is that we trust in the Lord. We, we seek him, right, with all of our heart. We don't lean on our own understanding, but we commit our ways to the Lord, that we seek devotion over direction. Now, yes, that does mean that when we have a decision to make in life, maybe a job, you know, maybe someone that you're going to marry, that we should absolutely pray We should absolutely read God's word. We should absolutely get wise counsel from other Christians around us. We should absolutely do those things. But then in the end, many times we just need to make a decision. We just need to like to do something. Like don't be stuck in the paralysis of analysis, like thinking through the 17 options you have for your life and then never do anything. But instead, pray, get wise counsel, read the scriptures and then do something. Go make disciples in that context, all right? God doesn't always promise to give us a, you know, a flashing light in the sky of what to do. That's not always how his will works. The second thing we want to see today, and we'll begin to wrap up with this one, is submitting to God's will. Once we understand God's will, the solution for being a Christian atheist is to submit to God's will. You may wonder why I skipped to verse 15. We're coming back to it now, okay? Verse 15 says this. It says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. All right? Now, James isn't saying that every time we make a statement about a plan we have, that we always have to say, if the Lord wills. It's not like a, you know, a, a superstitious thing 
we have to stack onto. This may get weird. Imagine you get a new job and you tell your boss on the phone, yeah, I'll, I'll be in at work in the morning at 9 a.m. if the Lord wills. You know, like, it may be, may be kind of weird. Now, that, that's true. It's absolutely true that the Lord may or may not will for you to be there in the morning, all right? But James isn't calling us to live that way and that we always have to utter this, this statement in that kind of superstitious way. But instead, this is more of a posture. It's an attitude that we should have. I love the way that Kent Hughes says it. The way he describes it is this way. If the Lord wills, is to be the constant refrain of our hearts as we conduct the affairs of our lives. If the Lord wills, must be written over students' plans, the choice of a life partner, future education, all everyday activities. Older people need to say from the heart, if God wills, I'll spend my time doing this. If God wills, my children will become this. If God wills, I will take up this ministry. If God wills, I will wake up tomorrow. And that's the kind of attitude that we should have of if God wills. I'm going to trust and submit not only the big picture of my life to God, but even the daily things, even the small things. So we submit to God's will then in two specific ways. First off, we submit to God's will by accepting what he allows. All right? Because let's be honest, God allows a lot of things in our lives that we wouldn't want there, that we wouldn't have normally wanted to happen in our lives. But part of submitting to his will is to accept these things, to accept what he allows into our lives. But there's a careful thing we have to do with this because submitting to God's will in that way isn't necessarily like a a giving in to fate. It's not kind of resigning yourself over to, okay, well, God willed this to happen. I'm just gonna let it happen because... God wanted it to happen. It's not that kind of attitude. Uh, Me and Jennifer were talking about this earlier this week, and she sent me a a great question um, that I want to share with you to think about this. And it says this, am I willingly submitting to what God allows in my life or am I simply accepting it because there's no use resisting? Am I willingly submitting to what God allows in my life or am I simply accepting it because there's no use resisting? Because the second way of doing it is not the attitude God wants us to have. He doesn't want us to be gluttons for punishment, kind of resigned to fate. But instead, he wants us to trust him in the pain. He wants us to trust him in the brokenness of life, knowing he's going to use that for ultimate good and for his glory. And we submit to his will in that way that we trust him. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, has this quote he wrote in a letter one time. He said, everything which he, he being God, everything which God sends is needful. And nothing can be needful, which he withholds. That everything God sends in our lives, he knew we needed it for some specific reason. And everything he withholds from our lives, he knew we didn't need that for a specific reason. Doesn't mean we have to understand it, but it means that we can trust God in the midst of it. Trust his wisdom. And lastly, we submit to God's will by seeking what he desires. All right, this is the positive of that. All right, and that means really this, that that we should live in an active dependence upon God an active dependence upon God. It's not like we take our life and we divide it into little boxes and we say, okay, God, you can have the Sunday morning box. You can have maybe the Wednesday night box. You can have maybe, you know, the, um, the family box, but not my work box or vice versa. We, we don't divide our life into boxes and say, God, you can have this, but not this. But instead we seek to serve God and submit to his will in everything in our lives, including the way that we use our money, the way we use our time, our career, our family, and even just everyday life. Think about questions like this. You know, how often do we go, off, go throughout the day and not live in active dependence upon God? How often do you get to the end of the day, you're, you're watching a show on Netflix and you look back and realize, man, I didn't really do anything today that really depended upon God. I didn't really seek out, seek out God's guidance and wisdom on my daily decisions throughout the day. You know, another question, you know, when, when was the last time that you started your day submitting your day and your plans to God? 
starting the day saying, God, take this day and do your will in it. May your will be done in this day. Guide me and use me. I have to ask myself the same question. And then one more question. If tomorrow, if the Holy Spirit just removed himself from your day tomorrow, would you even notice? Would anybody notice? If the Holy Spirit decided not to be around you, to even be a part of your day tomorrow, would you notice? Are we living in that kind of dependence upon God? Those are the kind of hard questions we have to ask. I have to ask myself. Because that's what it looks like to live in active dependence upon the Lord. And let's get practical for a second and we'll wrap up with this, all right? What are some practical ways that we can seek God's will in our daily lives? That we can seek out not to be Christian atheists. I'll give you four things, okay? And these aren't in your notes, so you may want to jot them down if you're a, if you're a note taker. Four things. First is this. We should be in God's word, all right? It seems like an easy Christian thing to say. It's read the Bible, but it's true, okay? That we need to have our minds renewed, as Paul would say in Romans 12. We need to have our minds renewed every day by the word of God so we can think aligned with God. We can have our, our thoughts aligned with the Lord to seek his will every day. So we should be in God's word, allowing our minds to be renewed to seek his will every day. Second, we should be constant in prayer. We should be submitting our days to God. We should be spending time talking to God, asking us to guide us and use us and bringing even the mundane stuff of our life to the Lord. It's so easy for me to sometimes only want to pray about the big stuff in life and, and, remember, and forget that God cares about even the small things stressing me out and worrying. That God cares about you know, the, the little decisions I make in the day. He wants to walk with me through those things. So we should be constant in prayer. Number three, we should be living in biblical community. We need examples of people like Billy Barton who gave us a faithful example of following Christ throughout life. We need those kind of people. We need people older than us. We need people younger than us that we can invest in. We need biblical community, people who can challenge us and show us examples of what it means to live God's will out in your life. We need that kind of stuff. Christianity isn't meant to be lived in a vacuum. We need a biblical community. And number four, this is a, maybe a surprising one, but we should have a rhythm of rest to seek God's will in our lives. A, a rhythm of rest. And I was convicted by this, but one of the biggest signs we're living as a Christian atheist is that we don't rest. You know why? It's because it shows that you think your life is all up to you. That if you stopped working or stopped doing whatever you think needs to be done for a moment, that the world's gonna fall apart. And that shows some practical atheism. That you think, okay, well, if I back off, then God's not going to take care of this. And so rest and a rhythm of rest is a way that we can show that we submit to God's will. Because in the end, he doesn't need us, right? He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you, right? God's will is going to be done (laughs) one way or the other. He invites us to participate in it, right? But one of the ways that we submit to his will is by resting, right? And trusting in who he is and what he's going to do. So we have to have a rhythm of rest. All right, I'm going to wrap up uh, with this now because one thing as I was reading through these verses this week and kind of preparing, as I realized this is that James, the book of James can be like a really crushing book without the gospel. You know what I mean? Like the, the book of James can be a very crushing book without the cross. And as we talk about resting a second ago, we have to remember that also as Christians, we have to rest in the gospel when it comes to being confronted in these kind of ways. Because if you think about it, like we've already seen in earlier in the book today, that we've all failed in different ways from this today. We've all lived as Christian atheists in different ways. We've all, you know, at least broken that law where we say we knew the right thing to do and we didn't do it. We've all not done the right thing we knew we should have. We've all disobeyed in those ways. And James 2.10, which we looked at probably months ago, but James 2.10 tells us that whoever keeps all of God's laws but breaks just one of them is guilty of being a lawbreaker. That if we break one of God's laws but fails one time, we're guilty before God breaking all his laws. 
So in that case, then we're all done. Like we have no hope on our own to be good enough in this kind of way. That's why James is crushing without the cross, right? Because there is a Jesus, the son of God, who knew the exact will of God. He never had to figure it out. He knew it exactly because he was God in and of himself, fully God, fully man. But Jesus himself knew the will of God. He came and he never neglected to do the right that he knew he had to do. He always fully obeyed God. He always stayed away from sin. He lived a perfect life and he went to the cross and he died on the cross to absorb all of our failures. Every time that we sinned actively against God, every time that we neglected to obey God in a certain way, he absorbed all of that. He took that on the cross for us that if we will simply surrender our lives to him and believe in him, we can have new life in his name. We can have safety, security, rest, peace with him. We won't be evaluated by our performance in life, but by what he's done for us. We can have freedom and victory in that way. And that's the truth of the gospel. And so if you're a Christian here today, if you put your faith in Jesus, first off, you can rest in the fact that God's not judging you based on your performance in these ways. He's not judging you and he's not gonna condemn you because you're living sometimes as a Christian atheist. But he is calling you to a better life. He's calling you to a life of flourishing, a good life that is so much better than we could ever build for ourselves. I look at my life and it's nothing like what I would have planned when I was like 16 or 17, but it is so much better than the plans I had for my life. That God's ways are so much higher than my ways. It's not what I expected. It's not what I maybe would have wanted as a 16 year old, but I love it. I'm so thankful that the Lord has blessed me in the ways he has, but we have to trust God in those ways because he's calling us into the good life. It may seem upside down sometimes, but his ways are higher than our ways. And then lastly, if you're not a Christian here, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, well, today can be that day. If you've been convicted by the fact that not only have you actively disobeyed God, but you've also actively not obeyed him by just neglecting the good to do, today you can put your faith in Christ. You can receive new life in his name. You can find forgiveness because of what Christ has done on the cross for you and his victory on the third day over sin and death. And so today, if you would like that, we'd love to talk to you more about it. There's plenty of Christians in this room who'd love to talk to you. If you want to ask questions up front, whatever you want to do, we'd love to talk to you more uh, about that. Um, But as we close today, if you need prayer, uh, we would love to pray for you here up front. Um, I'm going to ask Colby or Keith or both of y'all, depending on how many we want to have up here, if you'll also join me up here. Uh, But if you need prayer, we would love to pray for you today. Whatever's going on, we would love to minister to you. Um, But let's pray, and we're going to sing in response to God's word. All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. And we thank you for, Lord, how you, uh, you expose us and how you, Lord, sometimes you break us, Lord, to, to build us back up into what you want us to be. You take Christians and you, you convict us, you, you, you discipline us as a good and perfect father to make us more into the image of Christ. And so I pray today, as I know I've been convicted and shaped this week looking at this text, I pray today with that every believer in this room would take an honest look at their lives and maybe pockets and boxes of their life where they, they may say they trust you, but they really are living like you don't have any authority in that area. That they're living simply for their own plans, for their own will to be done and not your will. I pray that you would give us the blessing and the grace of spiritual insight to see those things, that we would humbly submit ourselves to you and that you would do the work that only you can do of building us back up, Father, and and really just transforming us more into Christ. And I pray for anyone today that doesn't know you, that you would draw them to faith today, that they may find new life in Christ. Pray in Christ's name, amen.